Welcome to Broadband Conversations. My name is Jessica Rosenworcel, and I'm a member of the Federal Communications Commission. And this is the podcast where I get to talk to leading women from across the technology, innovation, and media industries. So I started this podcast because I wanted to amplify the voices of women doing important work that moves this country forward. And so often we hear about the need for more women in technology, and we definitely need more women in science, technology, engineering, and math. But I also think we need to create a space to signal boost the women already here and already doing neat things. And today I have someone joining us who meets all those qualifications and more because she's someone we need to listen to because she's an expert in digital equity. And now during this public health emergency that has strained our hospitals and crashed our economy, we've got protests in our streets. I think we need people talking about digital equity because we need connections that strengthen our mutual bonds and prove that our interdependence is powerful. I think we need to talk more about broadband for all and I am so pleased that Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee is here today to do it. Now, she is a senior fellow at Brookings in the Governance Program Center for Technology Innovation, and she researches public policy designed to help develop equitable access to technology across the United States, designed to harness its power and create change in communities here at home and really around the world. And Dr. Turner-Lee's research also explores global and domestic broadband deployment and all sorts of internet governance issues. She's an expert on the intersection of race, wealth, and technology. And she's really got incredible ideas about civic engagement, criminal justice, and economic development. And I am so pleased to also call her a friend. So Dr. Turner-Lee, Nicole, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Commissioner. You know, I, I, I'm just one of your big fangirls when it comes to, you know, we've known each other for so long. So I know, I know. This is this is like having a buddy. But I want to ask, first of all, how are you doing right now? These are days. You know, it's, it's a lot. I mean, I have to say as a woman, and since this is focused on women, it has been hard to be a professional and a mother and a cook and the dog walker and the laundry person and the counselor all at the same time, I think we as women have realized during this pandemic that how just multi-layered we are. And we've actually, I think for many of us, we've tried to rise to the occasion, but I'm gonna tell you this, I'm tired. Um, oh, I know, uh, I know. I drink a lot of coffee, that's the only way. That's, yeah, it's yeah. coffee o'clock, many more hours of the day than I anticipated. But um, working from home is one thing, working from home in a pandemic is another. A whole other thing, that's right. Yeah. I've got I, I've got one success story though to share. Out of all of this, I've got a 12th grader that's on his way to college. So oh, uh, congratulations. Of 2020, but uh, we did get that one done. Now I just have to deal with my 13 year old daughter, and I'm still not sure what we're going to do without camp. But uh, other than that, I'm just glad to be here with you uh, generally because you just bring so much more to this debate. Thank you. All right, so let's roll back before the kids, before the pandemic, before it all. And tell me, before you got to where you are right now at Brookings, how, you know, what was your path? What were the things that lit you along the way and made you interested in these issues and got you to where you are? So a lot of people don't know my story. And, um, you know, many people know my previous work in advocacy prior to coming to Brookings. But before I even joined uh, the advocacy world at, in Washington, D.C., I was actually part of uh, the community world. I was finishing my PhD in Northwestern in Chicago, 
and as a young student was curious about the city and I had the opportunity to volunteer in community-based organizations. And this was really before the advent of the internet that we know today. I mean, this is when poverty was really real. Um, it's still real, uh, but I think back then we didn't know as my um, idol, Michael Harrington said in the other America, it was unclear how many people actually were on the uh, rolls of poverty. We had written them off essentially. And I was sitting in a community in Chicago's Robert Taylor Homes, which was concentrated uh, densified housing, 50,000 people on 25 full blocks volunteering. And I got into the internet because these kids were trying to find a way to understand what the whole world was about. And I'll never forget this. I was working at that time um, with a, a young organization with young kids. And I remember bringing these young people to my home um, because I was a student, had nothing else to do, no family. And I had a computer in a corner, right? And all the kids gathered around the computer to see what this thing was. And that led me to think, Commissioner, like there is a problem here. Uh, not only do we have, as William Julius Wilson, the sociologist talked about the social isolation of classes, we have poverty in ways that is so, um, has so deprived people of not just opportunity, but the vision of things that they can imagine. And that triggered me to go into starting a tech center. Um, and so I early on joined the Community Technology Center by working in public housing to bring 386 computers, that's how old I am, with CD-ROMs and DVDs to some of Chicago's very impoverished neighborhoods, neighborhoods that as a New Yorker I had never seen before. And coming out of that experience as a person who was in the graduate program, volunteering in public housing, teaching kids computer skills, uh, there was something special that happened with regards to our society, which was uh, things migrated online. And so for those of us who were in college, we understood what the tech said, you know, what tech was about. We knew that there was an intranet, an internet, but it was a special moment when the people that I was working with on as a volunteer still uh, saw the internet and they saw jobs and they saw uh, encyclopedias now digitized through Encarta CD from Microsoft. And they saw places that they had not visited. And it was at that point I was hooked. And I finished my degree subsequently, I got a PhD and I worked for a very long time before coming to Brookings um, and actually coming to Washington DC working in communities. I was part of a group called One Economy where we met almost 20 years ago, <laughs> where I was essentially uh, trying to figure out ways to bring broadband access to housing developments and the rest is history. I, I, I think I was just one of those people that decided to become a larger evangelist um, and take it to Washington DC. So I'm happy I was, I'm here because the work that I do now at Brookings informs policies, but it's very much based on my realistic experiences of being in communities where their thirst just could not be quenched by what was actually being provided to them. Oh, I love how you've combined sociology and technology. And I know that's informed all your work um, associated with closing the digital divide. It's really been a theme throughout your professional life. But this pandemic, this current moment we're in has shown a spotlight on digital equity and issues of access like I think nothing before. And you know that I talk all the time about the homework gap. Kids who might have had internet service in school, but they don't have it at home. And in normal days, they can't do their homework. They can't do their schoolwork at night. But now for those same kids, it means the digital classroom is locked. And I'd love it if you could speak a little bit to what you've realized from all of your work now during this pandemic about just how critical connections are 
for kids at school and really for everyone else. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, uh, Commissioner, when we were all kind of growing up in this, right? When the community tech center movement was all about community networks, and then we went into the space around devices, broadband, um, digital literacy, content. And it is so interesting that since our friend Larry Urban started talking about this uh, early 2000s at the Department of Commerce, that we're still talking about it. And what has been so distressing to me is that we're talking about it now where it's actually moved from a binary um, construct of who's online and who's not to the very things that you spoke about with the homework gap when you introduced that five years ago, when you spoke about kids who didn't have broadband service at home, who could not finish their homework because they lacked, you know, much like a pencil, uh, the very resource needed to just actually complete a, a research project or a homework assignment. You know, I am just... Um, hurt and disappointed, honestly, as a person who's worked in communities, that we're still talking about this. And we're talking about this in the backdrop of very um, robust technology companies and innovations that are basically changing the way that we live in America and we live across the world. And so this pandemic, in many respects, and you and I have spoken about this on numerous occasions, it's brought back the spotlight on the homework gap. Um, and it's brought it back in such a way that has been so compelling uh, particularly in my conversations with superintendents and educators and my personal experience as a parent in a well-resourced district that we were unable to meet the promise of leveraging broadband as we know it, as it should be, um, as we considered it to be ubiquitously available uh, to millions of school-age kids. 53 million out of school, uh, I think you shared just recently about 12 to 15 million without access, and those kids suffered. Um, and that really, to me, was shameful on the part of the United States to not make this a priority over the last 25 years. Broadband has typically been the conversation around supply, right? And it's been the conversation around the edges. It's been on the margins, it's not in the middle of conversations like education or energy or healthcare. But I really think during this pandemic that we've changed the equation. And it takes, uh, as they say, since this is dedicated to female uh, leaders, it takes a few of us women to say something loud, right? Um, and then they listen to us and look. And now we're joined by a whole bunch of people that look like me, African-Americans who are saying it loud and young people. But the bottom line is we should have been ready for this. We were designed for a moment like this and we miserably failed when it came to ensuring connectivity for all, particularly our most vulnerable students that were in desperate need of having um, a tablet alongside a textbook uh, versus not having anything, you know, at all. Yeah, no, I listen, there's so much to unpack in who's vulnerable and who's likely to be part of this digital underclass. And I know one of the elements of it involves rural communities, you know, the places in this country that might be beautiful, that, but they're awfully remote, and the cost of deployment is really high relative to the population. And I know that you have spent some time in rural communities, and recently even in a community in rural Western Maryland, and spent you know time going to their houses, talking to, to, to students, talking to teachers, talking to business owners about connectivity and challenges. And I'd love it if you could talk a little bit more about that, because he takes it from the world of general really down to the specific. And I know you've written about it, so tell me some more here. Yeah, so it's so interesting. I mean, uh, I don't think that uh, the commissioner who's known me so for so many years would know that I was writing a book <laughs> around this stuff. I've been one of those people with, you know, the large mouthpiece around these issues, and now I'm actually putting it to paper. So in the last year, actually the year before the pandemic, I spent that entire year traveling around the country, 
um, I decided that the Beltway, you know, we think we know who we're talking to when in actuality we may not. And the way that the digital divide has morphed into sort of this digital invisibility was really important to me based on what you said to understand the overlay of systemic inequalities on the on how they're exacerbated by not having access. So I went to all these communities. I didn't have on my DC gear. You know, I went in uh, gym shoes and, uh, <laughs> you know, not necessarily leggings that I'm wearing every day, right? But uh, comfortable clothes. And I used to, I just walked up on people after finding a champion in that particular community to ask him about their internet access. And two of those communities I went to were rural. And it was very interesting because I'm a city girl. And so it was my first time actually going to a community where a cow was right in my face. <laughs> And it wasn't at a zoo, right? And I was actually sitting in places that there were more animals and there were people um, generally, right? And so one of those communities was Garrett County, Maryland. And it was interesting because I wanted to go there because I had heard about a project around the use of TV white space, which was so different than uh, the conversations we've been having when it comes to rural broadband deployment, which is, you know, put a lot of money towards either incumbent solutions or solutions that have worked before with the hope that, one of these solutions will stick. And I think you're, you have been at the forefront of continuing to remind people that rural broadband challenges have been around for decades, right? It's something that we have not been able to fix on a whole host of reasons, the return on investment, the facility, proximity, et cetera. But in this community, I met some really interesting people. You know, a person like a mechanic who, uh, as a result of having TV white space, which is the use of um, unused broadcast spectrum, that allows for, I would say, more smaller mesh networks to come together for connectivity. He said he was able, just by having that one connection to order the parts in like five minutes versus 10 hours, because he had to go through every book to figure out what car. He said his wife was upstairs commuting, telecommuting to Boston because of this connectivity that they had that they never had before. I met a, a, a social service agency that because of having a kiosk now in certain parts of the Amish community there, they can actually gather data and provision better services. I met a farmer who, you know, still at this point, even with a, a, a TV white space solution, would love to have more access just to order equipment, not yet do precision agriculture, but just to order equipment into his farm, uh, air, into his, you know, where his home is. And to me, that was very humbling because what it suggests is, as Washington DC policymakers, we often think that if we throw a whole lot of post-it notes that something is going to stick. And then we somehow find a way to take the post-it notes and carve it into the program that we think is best for people that we don't know what their particular needs are. And so I wrote a piece about that in terms of my experience there. Uh, similarly, um, you know, I'll just share this one in terms of rural. I had a chance to go to a black rural community in Marion, Alabama. Uh, you sat on the panel with Dr. Kathy Temple. Huge poverty, poverty upon poverty in that place. Uh, lack of access to libraries and 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 downtown was still a 10 mile trek. But yet, you know, we can't forget those communities, right? And this particular uh, teacher or principal decided to get a one-to-one -one solution and find a way to put access on it so she could not just have the student have it, but the whole community, the whole household. And I would say to you, as we consider ways to solve the rural problem, I realize that there are a couple things at play. One is, what is the solution? And we have for long just found ourselves looking at one way to do it, right? When really maybe it's multiple solutions, multiple ambassadors, <laughs> multiple use cases that we may actually have to deploy to get rural down to the finish line. And I totally believe that after doing the work on the book, every community is different. 
And then I also think that we have to look at rural communities and stop kind of pitting them against urban, right? Because we still have challenges in urban. There's still places around this country where people who live in a city either can't afford it or they don't have access to competitive service. It's so important because, you know, we talk about the rural problem a lot in Washington, and we should, because we've got to figure out how to get some kind of digital infrastructure everywhere. That's right. That's but right. we also have to recognize that in urban and suburban communities, there are a lot of folks who are disconnected too. And we don't solve our digital divide if we don't also address that adoption problem. So tell me about your work that you've done with, um, I would say, less rural communities, maybe even urban communities, and how we start developing the kind of programs that can get more people connected and more households in those places. Well, I think, I think it goes back to what I found in rural, right? That it's, it's going to take a host of solutions. And I think the same thing will be the case in urban. I mean, we have a lot more Passover rate as we have seen through the FCC reports in terms of connectivity access. But in rural and com urban communities, I found that you know, uh, one gentleman that I met, his mobile phone is active two weeks out of the month because he runs out of data by the second week. And he's a day laborer, meaning that he is no longer able to work. And I found kids that you and I have been very concerned about before the pandemic that were walking to local McDonald's to finish their homework because they lacked a uh, home broadband in a rural area two or three miles outside of the state capital. Um, I was talking, I was in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, to give you a sense of that. I mean, Ellen Katz, the, one of the commissioners there. Yeah. She that's a, you know, that's my, that's my hometown, my own backyard. You know, I was I went there, you know, and I, I visited uh, Ellen and a community organizer who at the end of that visit, I realized like many other urban areas, it's not that they don't have it, folks. It's what they it's that they don't know that what they don't have is sufficient enough mm -hmm. to do what they have to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So the barbershop owner, the beauty supply place, the mother who's waiting outside the library trying to do telehealth is, is another woman I met who lived in an urban community who essentially said, without my son's phone, I would not have known that I was in um, the first stage of breast cancer because my doctor has moved to this online system. You can't even call anymore. I mean, to me, I think these issues around the death of analog matter. And this pandemic, which I think for those of us who have been doing this for many, many, many years, just showed a light for us to say, we told you so. <laughs> We've been telling you so. This is not new. And so I, I know you do the same thing. I tell people constantly, this is not the invention of the new digital divide. This is now even worse because this digital invisibility is the other America. It's a new America that is so shut out of every pertinent conversation and service and benefit that can be offered. Um, you know, I love that you're introducing the concept of digital invisibility. And I also know, in fact, that you're using that when you describe your book, which is the digitally invisible, how the internet is creating a new underclass. So I want you to talk a little bit about that title because that's some heavy stuff and what your thesis is in this book and how you discuss these issues because they are so important. So it's so interesting. And, um, you know, I, I think when I started the book, I wanted to write something on something I knew best at Brookings Press, right? As a senior fellow, that's what we do. We think and we write books, right? And so I was thinking about the things that I want to talk about. And trust me, I also work on things like algorithmic discrimination and infrastructure. And I decided to go with this book, honestly, after going to the Michelle Obama Becoming Tour, I'm not going to lie, where she... <laughs> 
I mean, listen, I don't know that you could choose a better model. That sounds that sounds like a nice place to start. I mean, I don't think I'll pack out, you know, huge stadiums, but it was something that she did in there that was a trigger for me is that she told these personal stories. And as I decided to write this book, I wanted to tell these stories. And as I was thinking about these stories, the concept of digitally stuck and digitally invisible kept coming in my head. Digitally stuck means that it's kind of like, um, as my friend Larry um, shared with me, uh, not Larry Irvin, the other Larry that we know out of California, he, he shared with me this model of an escalator where at a certain point people become stuck because the escalator either stops halfway through or they get to the top, they don't really know where they're going. And I think we all thought we were there because we put so much money and investments um, in policies that should get people uh, you know, at the height of the elevator, the end of it. But really what I think we've created are digitally invisible people. And we think because people have access to smartphones and other devices and they're digitally intuitive around what the technology offers and they know about social media and it's in its purest form of what you know, connections you can make, it does not necessarily mean that they're using those things to improve quality of life. And so this journey of my book has been around the digitally invisible in terms of how are we as a country not leveraging the resources that we have available through this new tech ecosystem to make changes around how we service people, how we connect to people, how we educate people, and how we integrate them into the next wave of digital innovation. You know, as a regulator, I'm always um, looking at you folks saying to myself, I don't know how they keep up with technology policy <laughs> because one time, you know, once something is let regulated, a new thing comes aboard. And so imagine if you're not part of that conversation. Uh, tools and resources are not designed to serve you. The data that is collected about you, if it's even collected at all because you're not online, does not necessarily help you advance. And it's these circumstances around a technology that I think, like yourself and other technology policy wonks, that has so much um, uh, potential for achievement and advancement and, and really surfacing hard issues like we're seeing with smartphones during a protest, uh, during the killing of George Floyd, right, to the use of AI to solve uh, health challenges, but it's one in which if you don't have it, you, we don't see you. We don't know you. And that's so well put. If you don't have it, we don't see you, you know, because there's, a, there's also this level of you want to connect everyone, but when you connect everyone, you don't just want them consuming, you want them creating because yeah. in that creating is fuller participation in our economy, our civic culture. And to me, like even these days, we are wrestling with the fact that we're not all connected. And even among those who are connected, we're not all creating. Yes. And um, I hope when we get to the other side of this, we're going to figure out how to improve on these things. Um, we're probably going to use your book to do it because we're going to need some suggestions for good ideas. Oh, I got some for you. Just wait. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that you do what you do. And again, just tell me the name of the book so you can say it yourself and when it's coming out. So the name of the book is Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And I just want to clarify, the new underclass are not just people that we typically think of that are disproportionately poor, uh, minority, foreign-born, older, rural, but they're farmers now are part of the new digital class, right? That mechanic was part of the new digital underclass. And so... Um, that's the name of the book. It has been a fantastic time. This quarantine has given me tons of time to write. 
when I'm not being those other roles. <laughs> and in addition to that, this this period of time has got given me a lot of self-reflection on policy uh, that we need to break and restart and redo. And I would even suggest, and you know, I, I wouldn't be myself, I didn't say this, even the type of enthusiasm around this protest and the, 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 the movement for change, whatever that may be for anybody listening, right? As a woman, as an African-American, as a student, as a young person, as somebody who's been impacted by police brutality, all that energy is actually going into this book. So the book will be out uh, January 2021, because um, it's got to go through all that other stuff. But I'm really excited for it being a groundbreaking piece on how we need to go back and harness the power of technology to help us solve problems again. And now oh, I'm so glad that you do this work at Brookings <laughs> and you're contributing your background in technology and sociology to this work in Washington. Yeah, my mother's glad too. She didn't know what I was going to do with a sociology. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, you can tell her there are a lot of people who are very proud of your work. Um, and um, and I don't think she should be so concerned at these at this moment at this time. So before you go, I have a few questions I like to ask every guest. And one is like from the Wayback Machine. So you've got to tell me what was the first thing you did online or on the internet? Email. I think that at that time I emailed a teacher. That was probably the first thing. I you emailed a teacher. This I okay. Did. That's like that's a little bit that's a little bit nerdy. Well, no, it's not like looking for music, not looking for a song. It's not looking for, you know. I emailed the teacher because remember at that time, the internet was available in colleges and universities. So at that time, I actually had my first exposure in email. Um, yeah. Okay. Email the teacher. Feels like a PhD student thing to say. All right. We're moving on. What's the last thing you did? Like literally the very last thing you did uh, online. Uh, so like in the last couple of hours, days, weeks. Um, I did a Zoom call. <laughs> That's the last thing. I, I you know? actually <laughs> I would actually tell you, okay, okay, I'll be I'll be authentic. The most significant part of my email, my internet experience was meeting my new friend. <laughs> and he's wonderful. <laughs> so I put that out there. Oh and my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Life changes are happening in quarantine. All right. Oh, that, was before, that was before quarantine. That was before quarantine. <laughs> We're going to have things to talk about later. So now I want you to, though, step back, put on the, uh, the uh, you know, future, uh, look out to the future and tell me what you want digital and internet life to look like. I think if I were to think about the future, I would say that the future that many of us thought about when we were growing up through the Jensen's and other shows that were all futuristic with, you know, flying robots and cars. I honestly think that at some point that's all going to come true. But I think when I look at the internet, I want to see a world where the internet is used for the public good and it's used for humanity to solve problems like climate change and racial unrest and create conversations that bring us together versus polarize us. And I, I think just going forward, I see the internet as a, as a tool for really the next mode of communication that will be as important as the telephone was when we were trying to stay in touch with each other as we sat in communities. And so I, I'm, I'm real optimistic about the power of technology. I really am. But my pessimism and my full desire, and I'll do this until the day I go to my grave, is to make sure everybody has it. And so, you know, 
I like I said, I'm a fangirl commissioner because when I hear you speak about this, I'm right there with you. And somebody has to do it. And now it's up to generations beyond ourselves, women in particular, rise up because we have to make sure that no one is left behind. We cannot allow the uh, life of analog to live any more uh, further in the lives of people you know, who need it the most. And so that that's what I hope to see in the next 10 years that we're looking at technology as something that's just as, as normal as having bread, you know, or milk in your refrigerator. It's just part of who we are. Here, here. All right, so before we go, tell me where folks can follow you and keep up with the work you're doing. So people can follow me, obviously, at Brookings. If you go to the Brookings website, I have an expert page. You can also follow all of my work um, outside of Brookings on my personal webpage, which is Dr. Nicole Speaks, real easy, drnicolespeaks.com. And then um, I'm always active on Twitter. So go online and find me at, at Dr. Turner Lee, at Dr. Turner Lee. You will find me involved in somebody else's conversation, if not yours. Um, at all times. All right. So that wraps up this episode of Broadband Conversations. Thank you, Nicole, for being here. Thanks to everyone for listening. Take care.